Welcome back to Held and Healed. This podcast is a resource filled with resources to help you on your healing journey. Today, we have a special guest who is an author, a survivor, and an advocate, and I just want to introduce you to her, and then she's going to share some of her story. Bella Hope Shiloh is an author, speaker, survivor, and advocate against domestic abuse. Between raising her four children, working, and studying to become an attorney, in her spare time, she likes to dot, 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 what free time? She also enjoys photography and her crazy Doberman, Selah. Welcome to Held and Healed, Bella. Hi, Heather. How are you this morning? Amazing. <laughs> How are you? We I got our times mixed up here with different time zones. I apologize for that. <laughs> I'm always a little bit nervous when I send out an invitation because I really cannot, like, in my brain convert um, time zones. So I need to, like, make myself a chart and just keep that handy. So I'm going to read from the back of your book. Your book is called Prisoners in the Shed. And just a little summary, um, having grown up in a child of life, of chi- a life of childhood abuse, Bella Hope was determined to break the cycle and live a life full of passion and purpose. An enthusiastic dreamer, she viewed her future as her second chance. Sadly, the results of her past could not be shaken as easily as she thought. Lured by the promise of love and acceptance to fill the voids in her soul, she married a compelling, fearless man who was also a leader in a controlling religious cult. This book is a chilling true story of Bella Hope Shiloh's journey through the darkness of mind control and exploitation, which ultimately led to being captive in a shed in the woods for two and a half years. So that's just a little bit about your story and your book, but um, just thank you for taking the time today to come and share a little bit of your story. No problem. I appreciate you having me. So um, we've discussed before that you only share the things that you're comfortable sharing and um, what has it been like for you um, even writing the book and the story? Um, What made you decide to go out? Um, It's a very brave thing. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about why you wanted to write this book? Um, I think originally... I was doing it as a part of my healing process because I had been through so many years of manipulation and mind control that I needed to somehow um, put everything in a chronological order and take Mm -hmm. all the memories that I had and kind of organize them in my head. Yeah. Um, Because when people would ask, you know, about my story, I was just all over the board because there were so many dynamics and parts to it. So I kind of started writing the book as just, you know, part of my healing process. But also the goal of it was to help educate those who were not aware of the dynamics of domestic abuse and domestic violence, of what really goes on behind closed doors, Mm. the things that people don't see because they're really a lot that happens that people don't realize. One of the major things that victims get asked is, why didn't you just leave? Mm. And so by writing the book, I kind of wanted to help answer that question of exactly why they choose not to leave, or maybe they don't feel like they can leave. 
Yeah, absolutely. And as we both are very familiar with the systems of abuse and the patterns of abuse, like your story checks off all boxes in all categories. Like, I don't think there's a single, you know, example in the patterns and systems of abuse that you haven't endured. And it took a while for you to even call it and name it abuse. Yeah, I totally did not know that I was living in abuse when I was living in it. And I have come to find out that that is quite common mm-hmm. with victims. They do not see what they're going through as abuse. It has been so normalized. Their abuser has used so much manipulation and wording and arguments that many victims are really confused about what's going on. And even in some of the most blatant, obvious abuses, um, that I've heard from victims, I am often amazed that they really do not see it. And sometimes it can be really frustrating, but I remember being in that place where I just didn't know because that was my normal. And that's especially common within religious circles, um, as your story um, indicates. Like so many people are in churches, which are in a lot of ways categorized as cults. And they are believing um, lies about themselves, lies about God, lies about God's word. And there's this power and control dominance, you know, male patriarchy that you must submit, you must do this to please God. And so I believe that there are countless, countless women that are enduring abuse of some form and don't have any idea that that's what it is. They believe that they are suffering for Christ. Um, I'm sorry, but that's not what suffering for Christ means. (laughs) Abuse is not suffering for Christ just for the sake of being with an abusive partner. If you're being, you know, persecuted because of your faith in Jesus Christ, that's very different, but that's not, that's not um, suffering for the cause of Christ. So um, why don't you just, you know, give us a, I don't know, a summary maybe of your childhood and what sort of like prepared the soil then for this relationship. Um, Let's just start there. Um, Tell us a little bit about your, your childhood years. Okay. Um, Well, I grew up in a very abusive home, so that pretty much primed me for future abuses because that established what quote unquote, my normal was. Um, my father was an alcoholic and he mentally and emotionally and physically and sexually abused us for years. Mm. Um, and so sometime around when I was about 14 years old, he read a book and claimed that he was converted to God. And we had no idea what that meant because he always told us that church was a crutch for weak people and do don't need religion. And so all of a sudden, my abusive father who had done all these horrible things, all of a sudden he claims that he has this conversion to God and he wants Mm. to start going to church. Um, And so he ended up introducing us to a cult um, that is, when I say cult, I don't just mean, you know, a controlling church. It actually fulfills all the requirements for a cult, but, that's a side issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that word can be used almost like, you know, in jest, but there are certain criteria. Yes. That yours met. Yes. So, um, he 
you know, introduced us to the cult and they were very much about powering over people, using their authority to tell them, to tell other people how to live, what to eat, how to dress, like every little thing about our life had rules attached to it. And so I met my future husband in this cult. He was a member there. And that's pretty much what primed me to accept the abuse that he would do later on because Mm -hmm. I was taught, you know, you should be a submissive wife. You should, you know, be ruled over by your husband. You should listen to everything he says. He gets to make the final decisions. And I thought that it was my job as a submissive wife to do whatever he told me to do. And it, it didn't happen um, overnight necessarily. He slowly groomed me over time as he took away my freedoms to listen to everything that he said. I did not go from being a um, woman to living in a shed overnight. overnight. Mm-hmm. Nobody it is a very... Um, slow process that you don't even realize that your freedoms are being taken away, but point by point and belief by belief and sermon after sermon and Mm -hmm. conversation after conversation, I truly believe that it was my place to do whatever he said. And that is how I ended up being captive in a shed with my children for several years So when your father, quote unquote, came to Jesus, came to God, did his behaviors change? Did he get more abusive or was it pretty much just the same behaviors, but he was now penning this on God? Actually, his behaviors did change for a while. And that's what made it, um, I don't want to say interesting to us. That's kind of what drew us into it because. Okay. Okay. So there was an initial change. Yes, we saw that he stopped screaming and swearing at everybody. He stopped drinking. He stopped. He started to become a better person. Okay. So that drew us in like, well, hey, this is much better than, you know, his other version of himself. So some of the external behaviors and abuses shifted, but that mentality was still there. Correct. Okay. And that would be, you know, on the surface, that would be very confusing because it feels like he's changing, but the core, the foundation, the roots were still very much abuse. True. Wow. Wow. That is so, you know, I know a lot of people in the advocacy realm don't like the word grooming, um, but it's definitely preparing the soil and it's breaking you down. It's brainwashing you, whatever word you like to choose to use, um, So then you go on. So I've read your story um, and our friend, Sarah McDougall, um, she said the book prisoners in the shed reads like a horror story, all the more chilling because it is true. So I loaned your book to a friend who is not sheltered in any way, shape or form. And I thought she could handle it, but she was shocked. (laughs) She was just utterly shocked. And I think the the reason it is so shocking is because it is a true story. It's not fiction. It's not made up. It's not something that could have happened. It's something that did happen. So how do you go from being this, you know, 
person who believes you're doing all the right things, believes you're serving God. And how do you even come to start living in a shed? How did that like slow fade begin for you? Was that the plan? Were you supposed to live in a shed? No, <laughs> <laughs> that was not the plan. <laughs> not the goal for my life for sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> not at all. It was a slow, it was a slow fade little bit by little bit. It was. And, um, I think, I think it might've, you know, happened on its own because he was so much about isolating. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I think really, um, put the pressure on was the religious aspect combined with the abusive aspect. So our cult believed that, uh, the government was coming after us. They were going to kill us. They were going to persecute us. They were going to take our children away. Um, they were going to set all the cities on fire and we were just, you know, all the end time events, last day events, things were going to be directed at us. And so they taught us that we needed to get out into the country, be self-sufficient, be off the grid, um, store up food in a way, you know, learn to live off the land, all the last day prepper things, which I guess knowing how to survive to it was overwhelming. And so we always felt like we were in a race against time. Mm. And so we needed to get out in the country and be off the grid as much as possible, be away from society, be coming after us. And so that narrative was what prepped me for accepting his idea of, hey, let's go buy property. Um, I work in construction. I can build a house on it. We can put up solar panels, you know, and let's let's just make this happen. Let's do this. We know do it now pressures from the side that, you know, he told me he was going to with several children if I didn't do what he wanted. So there was that extra little, um, but, um, we purchased property. I was, uh, pregnant with my third child at that time when we bought it. And I really didn't have a say in the property that we bought. Um, I knew that it was not well draining. I knew that it wasn't really something I wanted, but, I was looking at either buy this property and agree with him or lose your marriage, mm. and break up your family. Um, so I agreed to it. And initially the plan was he was going to put up, you know, the foundation of a house and the main shell. And we would live in that until, you know, he, we had more money, we had more time and he would finish off a room at a time. You know, it sounds a little bit reasonable, we could save money, all the stuff, blah, blah, blah. Wouldn't have a mortgage, wouldn't be dependent on other people. Except it didn't work that way. And I don't know that his intentions were ever to make that happen. And when we're talking about a shed, I mean, we're talking about in the middle of nowhere, no indoor plumbing. Did you have electricity at all? Or did you just have some generator power from time to time? We had a generator that I was not strong enough to get it started. Yeah, so yeah. I had power maybe for an hour a day if I could get it started. Wow. Um, and not every day, just 
when I could get it started. Maybe that was once a week. Maybe that was several times a week. There was no tallying. Um, he didn't have the temporary electric pole um, pulled in until after I had already left the shed. Okay. So we're talking about a five gallon bucket for your toilet, washing dishes in a snake infested Creek, foraging the woods for food when he wouldn't provide food for you all bathing in that Creek or in the rain. Like, I mean, this is like camping, roughing it for two and a half flipping years. And that was, that was the thing. (laughs) My head, it was always temporary. Yes. Like this is going to get better. He's going to come back. Um, from working out of state, he's going to, um, be able to fix up this, or he's going to improve that. And, and there were little tiny improvements that might happen. Like he might install a door or he might, um, work on chopping some wood or, you know, just little things that I would really hang on to in my brain of denial that things were getting better and that they were going to get better. So he was out of town a lot and you were there with the children alone most of the time without reliable transportation to even get to town lots of times without even resources to go buy the food, the groceries that you needed. And so when he was home, what was that environment and that atmosphere like? It was mixed. I was always happy to see him come home because Otherwise, I was just there for two or three weeks at a time with babies. Mm. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of social interaction. Occasionally, if the car would work, I would go to church and be around adults for a couple hours. But I did not really have much of a social outlet. And so when he would show up, it was like, oh, wow, I have human interaction and an adult to talk to. And so I was excited. Um, But it didn't last very long because he was a very angry person. Mm. Um, He could usually go for 24 to 48 hours before he would blow up about something. So in a sense, I was happy. In a sense, there was dread because I never knew what was going to come down the chute. So that you mentioned the church. And I think that was the thing as I was reading your story, it seemed at first that this church was a supportive system. It seemed at first that there were some people that were in your corner and I kept hoping, okay, as I read the book, let me, let me see this church, like really stand for her. Let me see this church that when they became aware of what was going on in her home, that they, they did the right thing by her. And of course, sadly, tragically, that is not your story. So how was it that people, there were people who were aware of your situation, people who were aware of the, the way that you were living, people that could see, I think at one point you, you dropped down to like 88 pounds, people Mm -hmm. that could see that. Why didn't somebody speak up? Why didn't somebody say this isn't okay? Or even say that to you? I mean, I know you can't really speak for other people, but I'm, that's just the question that was in my brain as I was reading this. Like, where was the church? Where was the body of Christ? So there's a couple dynamics, I think, that play into that. Um, number one, I would say that for churches to not believe victims is very, very common. Mm-hmm. It's actually a um, And that goes across denominations. Yes, it does. So... 
a lot of times within Christianity, we are taught that we should, like you were saying earlier, we we just need to be more like Christ. We need to be more submissive. We need to be more this, more that. We need to suffer for the sake of Christ. This is all how it's worded. And so there's an element of um, believing the abuser a lot of times. Abusers are extremely manipulative Mm -hmm. and they can play the victim extremely well. Absolutely. Churches do not always know, first of all, who to believe when a situation comes out. But in my case, it was not so much that it couldn't be believed, but that they had beliefs that kind of fed into our situation because they had the same beliefs of we need to live out in the country. We need to live off the grid. Um, so did any of them live as you all lived or they just had nice homes out in the country? They had nice homes out in the country. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, <laughs> um, what I fi- that's what I figured. <laughs> and, and, but I just, for somebody to like actually come physically onto your property, see the way you were living and not have a problem with that. I can't wrap my mind around it. Okay, in somebody's defense, and I don't really know who because <laughs> none of them are defensible right now, but I, I do think that at some point there were private conversations that happened. Um, but when push came to shove, there were not a whole lot of people that wanted to stand up and say something. Mm-hmm. There was very much an, uh, the idea of you don't interfere in other people's families. If she's not complaining, then I guess she's fine with it. Let's stay out of it. Um, in fact, there was there was one person that I actually overheard one time uh, talking to his wife, and he said, "You know, I don't I don't really want to get involved in this mess." And I think if more people within church were honest, that is the bottom line. Yeah, and and you know, yeah. as victim, it's understandable because I didn't want to be involved in my own mess. Right. right. <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to be involved in this either. But this is my my life. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But people don't want to get in the mess. They don't want to get in the muck and the mire and the yucky stuff. And uh, it, it can put people at danger in dangerous situations. I mean, I understand that. But, you know, even I'm even thinking about like child protective services, like, how were they not aware? I guess nobody reported us. Um, and your you- kids were younger, so they weren't in the school system. Correct. Okay. And it's interesting if you see the pictures on my website of the property and I just on social media, we were hidden in plain sight. Wow. Our property was right off of a main highway. Mm. It was behind a line of trees on several sides. It was behind a, you know, fence. It was not a boarded fence. You know, you could see through the fence, but... It, it was sheltered. And when I went back years later, after I had left, um, I took a police escort with me and, you know, we, we drove back to the shed and he told me, he's like, I, wow, I, I didn't even know this place was back here yeah. because one side is a field. One side is the woods. We were kind of along the wood line by the Creek. You couldn't really, see it it just it makes me wonder how many more situations like that exist oh many I have had four people contact me since my book has come out 
who have lived in sheds. Or and she- we're, we're talking about like in right real like now now not like 30 40 50 years ago we're talking about like modern day right now we are talking about modern day right now. we're not talking about a third world nation we're talking about the united states of america yep and i I want that to sink in i want that to sink in for people who are listening so whether whether you are that person who probably wouldn't have wi-fi to be listening to this podcast but hey it may be or if you are someone who maybe has somebody like that in your care, this reality exists today in 2021. It does exist. And unfortunately, it is so much more common than I would ever have imagined. Mm. I mean, four people have contacted me. Mm. And the, the signs are there if people know what to look for. I mean, obviously I was down to 88 pounds. There is something going on. There is medical help needed. There is physical help needed. There were signs. And we're also not saying that you have to live in a shed and be abandoned and neglected to be experiencing abuse. I mean, I know you say that a lot. You, you want women to know that, there are many forms of abuse and you don't want people comparing their story to yours. I've, I've seen you write things about that because abuse is abuse. Right. And it doesn't have to be as extreme as Bella's story for you to need help and steps to escape abuse. And I, I know that that's your heart in sharing with women. Like you don't just think the prisoners in the shed need to get set free. You believe that women who are being abused in any way, um, should, should have the knowledge of their worth and their value and that there's another way. <laughs> and I, I guess like, when did the light go on for you? When did you realize this is not okay? I didn't have a revelation. It actually came in little steps over time. Um, and even now, Um, I'm speaking specifically of last night. Last Mm. night was the first time that I cried about my own situation. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And And we, and we've been back and forth a couple, we've been back and forth a couple of times through the last month or so, because I want to honor you. And if doing even an interview, like sets you, you know, puts you over the edge and you don't want, like, I wanted to say at any moment we can cancel this. Like, (laughs) So what, what kind of set that emotion then last night? Why did you finally feel like you could, you could cry? Because I finally got to that point in my healing. I was looking at photos last night, excuse me. And for the first time I saw it from the outside. Mm -hmm. Nobody should have to live like this. No. And for so many years, even now that I've been out of it for years, to me, my story does not feel extreme. Mm. I know everybody tells me that and they're like, well, you know, I've never lived in a shed. I've never gone through what you've gone through. And there's a part of me that just does not grasp the extreme stuff that we went through. It is still, I'm still desensitized to it. Mm. It is still just facts of my life I don't see it as extreme abuse now if it was for someone else if I saw somebody else living like this 
I would want to go in, rip them out, sure. have them understand how crazy that is, how extreme that is, and do everything I could to help them. But with me, I'm just like, suck it up, buttercup. That's just wow. how it is. <laughs> so I think, I think last night when I was looking at the pictures, I had finally gotten to the point in my healing where I could have compassion for my own story as much as I would have compassion if it was for somebody else. That's that's healing right there. That is a huge step in your healing. I, I saw a quote recently that said that pain travels through families until someone is ready and willing to feel it. Yes. <laughs> and I asked my ladies, I was like, who's ready to feel it? Who's ready to heal it? Because you have to feel it before you can heal it. And so I think I was going to ask you, you know, during this, how can we be praying for you? And so I think that's at the top of the list that God would just strengthen you if you have stepped into this new part of your healing journey or you're, you're, you're beginning to feel, talk about exhausting <laughs> because to dissociate and to compartmentalize and to put your pain into a little box and lock the key and just get by because you had to, you had to just survive. You had to be there for your children. You had to be there through all the legal stuff. You had to be there, but now it seems like maybe it's time to step over here. And what I love about God. Okay. So first of all, let's nix this whole thing that he will, he won't give you more than you can handle. That's just bull crap. <laughs> well, first of all, he doesn't give you the sorrow. He doesn't give you the pain. He doesn't give you the abuse. That wasn't from God. First of all, let's just establish that. But this whole concept of God not allowing us to have more than we can handle is just bull. Like life comes at us. He promises he will never leave us or forsake us. He promises that his grace is sufficient. <laughs> but what I love about my God, at least in my journey, what I've experienced is that he's gentle and only allows me to feel what he is in that moment giving me the strength to deal with. And he doesn't make me... Sometimes counselors will try to push you to go places you're not ready to go, but God doesn't do that. Like he's gentle. He's, he's a loving, he's a loving father who knows the capacity we have to deal with or not deal with. So you can say at any moment, okay, this is just too much and take a break. And good counselors will respect that, I believe, and won't push you over like the breaking point. But at the same time, feeling it means you're ready to heal it. And that is like a huge answer to prayer, even though it may not feel like an answer to prayer right now. <laughs> yeah, it may be like, it may be like, nope, I like that numb thing a whole lot more. <laughs> but here's the beauty. Oh, yeah. Here's the beauty of it. We cannot pick and choose which emotions we're going to feel. If we turn off our emotions, we turn off the good and the bad. So as you begin to heal and feel, you're going to, begin to experience the good emotions with the hard ones. And so I can tell you from my own life, like I always was like, what's this whole hope thing, which I know is a big one for you. What's this whole joy thing? What's this whole peace thing? I did not know what those things were or what they felt like. But <laughs> now, can... now I can tell you that hope and joy and peace are three of my BFFs. And I don't want to give those girls up for anything. <laughs> that reminds me of something I went through with my therapist. She was trying to get me to um, be mindful and be able to live in the present, mm -hmm. not in the future and not in the past. And she's like, I want you to just sit 
for 10 seconds and just be present and just feel 10 seconds of what today feels like. It was the longest 10 seconds of my life. (laughs) Three hours later, it felt like. (laughs) And, but, but she had me do that every day. And I remember the time that I text her and I said, I'm sitting out on my porch in the sunshine. And I think that the emotion that I'm feeling right now is what some people or what most people might call happiness. Oh, wow. Mm. But I wasn't sure because I had never felt it. Oh, wow. Bless you. Mm. So that was like a, a pivotal moment right there. I'm like, oh, is, is that what people mm-hmm. like? Is that mm-hmm. is, is that what they feel when they say that they feel happy? <laughs> like my sons literally felt awkward when they started hearing me laugh. Wow. As I began to heal. And I'm like, boys, you need to get used to this because your mama, before life hit hard, <laughs> your mama was a very happy person. I'm actually the person that in high school people would say, Heather, we would pay good money to see you drunk or high, but you don't really, <laughs> you don't really need substances because you act that way without them. That that was my that was kind of my reputation in high school was just goofy, silly. And I had some hard crap I was dealing with. It wasn't that my life was easy. I just had this ability to, when I was in the right places with the right people, I had this ability to rise above it and just be like the life of the party minus the substances, you know? So the first couple of times my boys heard me like LOL for real, they just got this look on their faces. And I was like, boys, just get ready. Your mama's coming back. <laughs> And I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. My laugh is obnoxious and my laugh embarrasses you, but just get used to it because it's coming back. (laughs) And I'm not going to apologize for that. (laughs) That is a huge, that at least for me, laughing and comedy, dry humor. And even if it's completely inappropriate to the outside world looking (laughs) in. That survivor trauma humor is its own animal, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of people would think it's quite twisted, but if you know the hell that we have been through, okay. And now that we get to taste these good emotions and these happy feelings, like you just let us have our moment of being awkward and laughing, like, and cackling like a chicken and (laughs) just let us be people. Let us be. And I love that that's happening for you. And oh my gosh, there's so much more we could talk about, but I want to respect you and your energy and your time. So tell us just a little bit about your healing journey and like some of the things that have helped you resources, people, um, methods, like what has helped you to begin to see yourself as this human being that is worthy of honor and love and respect and dignity and all the things that God created you for. Well, <laughs> it's a journey. It's a journey. I know we're not there completely. It is definitely what, a journey. What began um, to open your eyes? <laughs> there are, it, well, if you ask me on a good day, I will tell you that um, this helped and that helped and this helped and that helped. And on a bad day, I will curl up in a fetal position sure. and, cry and be like, I'll never be healed. I don't, I sure. feel now than I ever was before. So hey, that's real though. That's real. 
that is the reality of how it is. I had actually hoped to have finished a second book by now about the healing journey because originally I wrote the story, uh, Prisoners in the Shed, to give the background of my narrative. But a lot of people were kind of disappointed. They're like, well, where's the happy ending? Mm. And I'm like, don't worry, that's coming in book two. But right now I didn't, you know, <laughs> like she it- got the heck out of the shed, people. <laughs> that's a really good first step. <laughs> I know the real work begins, but she's out of the shed. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I had planned to write the second book on the healing journey. And the more that I have gone along in my healing journey, sometimes the less healed I have felt. And I remember thinking, Mm -hmm. I can't write a second book. I have no advice to anybody. Mm -hmm. I have nothing to say. I just sit here and I feel broken. And part of that has to do with some chronic health problems that I'm suffering um, as a result of the abuse. Um, But on a good day, (laughs) when (laughs) I feel more strong and feel like more, I have more perspective of how far I've actually come. Um, there are actually a lot of things that I could point to as helps in my journey. I would say the number one thing was having a safe community Mm. and finding a group of people who most of them understand abuse and I don't have to filter myself. Yes, absolutely. Totally free, totally myself. And sister, let me say to you that when you've gone through what you've gone through, you're entitled to drop a few F-bombs here and there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously, I I remember listening to the Plain People's podcast and there were some F-bombs here and there. And I was like, you know, I was going to refer this podcast to so-and-so, but they would be so offended by that. And I was like, wait a minute. If you're more offended by somebody dropping the F-bomb than the hell that they've endured there may be a problem with your perspective. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, you need that community that you can be that real, that raw and say it like it is. Yeah. Yeah. People having people that understood me, having people that I didn't have to pretend in front of Mm -hmm. when ask, how are you? I don't have to smile and say, I'm fine. Yeah. I can just look at them and say, I'm doing terribly or, I can just be silent and they know, yeah. you know, so having, having that connection was extremely healing because most abuse happens in isolation. Absolutely. And yeah. We feel in isolation. We mm. need, to, we need safe. other people. We need community. Safe. We, we always add the word safe there. We need safe community. Right. So that was a big part. Again, learning to laugh, being able to, um, utilize all those good endorphins from laughing hysterically with people that also <laughs> share my sense of dry humor. Mm-hmm. Um, a great therapist and a great doctor has been indispensable. Mm-hmm. Um, They're not always easy to find. And so, yes, I'm working on helping to compile like some questions that you can ask, especially with the therapist element, because many are not domestic violence informed. Many are not trauma informed. Um, a lot of biblical counselors don't, you know, have the training that they need and are also not domestic violence informed, trauma informed. So we are the consumers. We are the ones that are paying for their services. It's okay for us to go in with a list of questions. 
exactly to and determine their qualifications and whether or not they're even equipped to help us. So have you used other things beyond talk therapy? Because I know there's a lot out there with EMDR, tapping, different things like that. Have you discovered any of those things to be helpful? Actually, yes. Um, one thing that my therapist did is EMDR, which I highly recommend on one hand, um, because it addresses the trauma without having to relive all the memories. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's extremely effective for the people that can do it. Not everybody can do it. Right. Right. Are certain, uh, contraindications, you know, if you have had, um, dissociation and stuff or, and what by dissociation, I mean like complete dissociation, right. <laughs> trying to, you know, put things on the shelf for a while or live in your little box of denial in order to, um, EMDR is not for everybody, but if you can do it, it is an extremely effective therapy. There are also body-based, um, therapies that I actually learned from one of my friends, Kyla Thorne, and she helps people. She's a coach. She's a trauma coach and she helps people learn different body modalities to calm the nervous system down and yes. to regulate because a lot of our trauma is stored in our body. Absolutely. And so I say the good therapist will train you to be able to self-regulate, self-calm, self-soothe on your own. Exactly. So that they, they can't be on speed dial. It's not good for their health. It's not good for your health, you know? And so they will teach you these ways that when you're in that triggering situation that you can step aside, go find a quiet space, and you can help yourself calm down. And that's so empowering, so yeah. empowering when we can be the ones. I remember I was in um, Guatemala and I was on a trip and um, we were coming down the mountain and I had not taken any motion sickness. I mean, we're talking about a mountain, mountain road, awful, 15 passenger van full of people. And I was so sick and I didn't want to ruin the evening for all the other people by getting sick, you know? We finally arrived at our destination and I went and I put myself in a bathroom stall where nobody could see me and I started tapping. <laughs> <laughs> I started tapping and I got myself out of that panic. You know, I'm going to get sick all over the place. I'm going to ruin everybody's night. I talked myself off of that ledge, literally calmed my whole body down and said, Heather, don't you ever go without Dramamine ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we had, we had left in a hurry and I just didn't have time to get ready. And it was just so empowering to be in that position where I could talk myself down. And of course I was praying through that. God gave me strength. I'm not going to ever take him out of the equation, but my goodness, like I couldn't, I was in another country. I couldn't call my therapist, <laughs> you know? So let's, let, let's learn how to do these things, the breathing, the the five, four, three, two, one thing where you use your senses. Like there's so many amazing ways that we can self-calm, self-regulate, self-soothe. So tell our listeners where, if I have any listeners after I said the F-bomb thing, um, <laughs> tell our listeners where they can find you on social media and beyond and how they can get a hold of your book. Okay. Um, <laughs> currently, uh, my book is uh, for sale on Amazon. It's just Prisoners in the Shed by Bella Hope Shiloh. 
Um, I am on Instagram. I'm just learning Instagram. I'm a little behind in technology because I've lived in a box my whole life. But and I said, <laughs> literally, literally, this woman, quite literally, hero. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm I'm on Facebook under Bella Hope Shiloh, which and, is not your real name, correct? Um, it will be. Okay, I, good for you. It is is currently um just my book name but I'm still in litigation with my ex five almost five and a half years later Mm. and as soon as my divorce is finalized and all the litigation calms down I can actually legally change my name legally change wow that's so powerful beautiful is Bella hope is hope and Shiloh is peace correct yes the beautiful oh. hope peace. That's a powerful name, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so on Amazon, on social media, as Bella Hope Shiloh, you have your author page and your personal page. I assume you want people to reach out to the author page. Is that best? Yes. Okay. Okay. And um, yeah, I encourage, you know, encourage people to read this book. Um, it could be very triggering. So if that is the case, just take it slow. Um, For those who are leaders, especially in the faith community, I think this is a really good reality check. It's a good reality check. And to ask yourself, what am I teaching on Sunday mornings that would enable men to do this to their wives? Because they may not be living in sheds, but the mentality, the power and the control and the sense of entitlement over I promise you that is happening in a lot of churches. And I think it's just time to take a long, hard look at what are we teaching and preaching that is enabling abuse. There are 13 different systems of of abuse. What are we teaching and preaching that is enabling that to happen right under our noses every single week? So I think that's Bella's hope and prayer. That's certainly my hope and prayer is that this would be exposed, that those who are being abused would realize they were being abused and would see that they have value and worth beyond that relationship and that God, as your father, does not ask you or expect you to endure that. Would we agree on that, Bella? Absolutely. (laughs) You know, like what human parent would say, go home to that? Why in in God's name do we say that God says that? God does not. God does not promote abuse. No. And he doesn't wish that for any of his children. Absolutely not. And he saw every night and every day that you were living in that shed and he wept over you long before you could weep over your own situation. Your heavenly father wept. And I know we're like, why doesn't he step in? Why doesn't he change it? Why doesn't he? And we know that it's because he gave free will. Ugh. He gave free will to us and he gave free will to our abusers and sadly that reality. But I promise you, whether you believe this or not, I promise you, he was not okay with that abuse. I promise you. So I I hope you believe that. And if you don't yet, um, we'll pray you, you know, we'll be able to believe that. Um, Yeah. You have been through so much. You are an amazing strong voice already you've said that these different women and I'm sure countless others have reached out to you so thank you for being their voice now that you have found your voice and my prayer for you is for protection over you protection over your children 
and for healing in every way, shape and form, body, mind, spirit, soul. And I will just keep praying that every time I see you come across social media, every time I see your book laying on my table, that's going to be my prayer for you, Bella. (laughs) Thank you so much. And we will stay in touch and um, have you back on, you know, in a couple months, if you're willing, just to see where you are in your journey. And I just thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Bless you. And to our listeners, uh, we just pray blessings on you. If this has brought some things to light for you, we pray you would reach out to the domestic violence hotline. If you are in physical danger, um, join us on Facebook at Held and Healed Christian Women Rebuilding After Abuse, where we share resource upon resource upon resource to help you on your healing journey. And we pray today that you would be um, held as you are being healed. Blessings. Mm -hmm.